quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we begin, of course, with the health lead, the number of coronavirus deaths in one day in the United States, surpassed 1,000 yesterday for the first time in two weeks, bringing the nation's death toll to more than 142,000. And as the virus ravages the west and the south of the United States, California has now surpassed New York as the state with the highest number of confirmed cases during this entire pandemic. More than 400,000 people have been infected in each state alone. The number of global cases has just surpassed 15 million this afternoon, and the U.S. is close to marking 4 million infections. The U.S., with about 4% of the world's population, accounts for a quarter of all infections globally. The same phenomenon tragically playing out with deaths. The U.S. also accounting for a quarter of those who have been killed by the disease, according to official numbers worldwide. Now, after months of downplaying and dismissing the virus, President Trump is acknowledging that it will get worse before it gets better, although the president also inexplicably continues to say that the virus will disappear, an anti-scientific comment. This afternoon, Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah offered a rare Republican Senate acknowledgement of the failure of our government to protect us, arguing the empirical reality that the U.S., is simply not a great example for the rest of the world on this matter. I just feel it's taken us a long, long, long time to get to a point where we have rapid testing, which we don't have yet, ample testing, which we don't have. Look at other nations. Uh, look at Germany, uh, the EU. They had some tough times, as we did, but they came out of them, and we're still struggling, in part because of uh, lack of effective uh, oversight of this process. No doubt Romney will be attacked uh, for stating those facts. As the president says the virus will disappear, Dr. Anthony Fauci today warned that we may never eradicate this coronavirus, but he said we may be able to control it with a vaccine and other measures to identify and isolate the virus, measures that President Trump continues to not push the way health officials say he needs to, steps he will not take despite the continued loss of American lives and livelihoods and the empirical evidence the Trump administration is failing to protect the citizens of this country as they deserve to be protected, frankly, a catastrophic failure. The hope seems to be that a vaccine will solve the problem. And as CNN's Athena Jones reports for us now, today the Trump administration signed a nearly $2 billion vaccine deal with the drug maker Pfizer. As the nation battles to get coronavirus under control, signs of progress on the vaccine front. The federal government reaching what's being called a historic deal to buy tens of millions of vaccines from pharmaceutical company Pfizer, if it's approved. We can acquire 100 million doses of this vaccine as early as December of 2019, of 2020, uh, and have the option to buy an additional 500 million doses. Pfizer, in partnership with German firm BioNTech, just the latest vaccine maker in recent days to issue a promising report. Preliminary data from the study shows a good immune response from patients vaccinated, and we plan to start the large-scale clinical trial before the end of July. 
involving 20 to 30,000 patients. Meanwhile, at the rate the virus is spreading, officials say if you don't already know someone who's been infected, that's likely to change in the coming weeks. California now surpassing New York in total confirmed cases, many in hard-hit Los Angeles County driven by young people. Infection and hospitalization rates painting a bleak picture in the South. With hospitals overwhelmed in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott now backing a curfew in the Rio Grande Valley while stopping short of supporting a shelter-in-place order issued by a county judge. What I've told him and others, if I can even simply get 10% of our people to follow it, I'm 10% better than what I am today. Hospitals also under pressure in Florida, where more than 50 ICUs have reached capacity and health officials say just 15 percent of ICU beds remain available statewide. ICU capacity in the state's hotspot, Miami-Dade County, now tops 132 percent. Still, the governor projecting optimism. I think we are on the right right course. I think we will continue to see improvements. Even as experts warn of a long road ahead for the U.S. I think we ultimately will get control of it. I don't really see us eradicating it. But officials say getting it under control will require people to follow basic public health guidelines. We're not defenseless. We have powerful tools. Probably the most powerful tool that we have is a simple face mask. And one more thing about the situation in California. Governor Gavin Newsom announcing the state has set a new record for daily coronavirus infections, adding more than 12,800 new cases in one day. Now, the positivity rate when it comes to testing it remains steady at 7.4 percent, but that's still too high. The governor saying every decimal point causes some concern. Jake. All right, Athena Jones in New York, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Dr. Jean Marazzo, a director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Marazzo, thanks for joining us. You heard the news of this deal uh, with Pfizer to deliver 100 million doses with the possibility of an additional half a billion doses down the road. Pfizer still needs, of course, to, to complete large-scale human trials. But tell us, how significant do you think this is? I think it's very significant, Jake. I mean, what this says is that there is confidence in the ability of this company and also several other companies to deliver on what looks to be a promising vaccine. And that's now been clear from at least two studies that have shown that that vaccine does elicit the kind of responses in people that suggest it will induce immunity. There are some really important caveats though. These are phase one studies, as I know you know, and that means all they are looking for is safety and correlates of protection. They are taking the plasma or the blood from the vaccinated people and studying it in the lab to see if it can neutralize the virus. It doesn't tell you whether those people have developed immunity that will truly protect them from reinfection. For that, we need the very, very big trials that are going to be underway very soon, and some have even started already. And as you know, there are other uh, vaccine candidates, five promising vaccine candidates specifically that are now moving to phase three trials uh, that are being developed using the full power of the U.S. government. Uh, is it possible that all of them could be effective or that none of them could be effective? It would be an amazing dream, a home run, if all of them were effective, because for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, you know, what, what we want to see for these vaccines, in addition to efficacy, are safety and scalability. And scalability 
gets to the heart of how are we really going to ramp up vaccine manufacturing in a way that's affordable for all of the countries that are going to need this vaccine. So that's a really important point. These vaccines use different platforms. You may know that the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, uses an adenovirus, as do a couple of other companies, which is a common cold virus that usually is harmless, and that's altered to express a protein from the coronavirus. In contrast, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, they use genetic approaches to inject people with really gene fragments that get you to make uh, an, uh, an antibody to the virus. So it's quite possible that with different methodologies, we might not only see different responses in the bodies, who knows, maybe at some point there will be ways to combine these things. And it's also possible that with some competition and also some different platforms to make the vaccine, we might be able to scale this up and get this to people urgently and faster and affordably, which is really, really critical. Well, let's talk about scaling that up. Um, Take a listen to Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar earlier today. We're not concerned about supply chain and its domestic manufacturing across the portfolio that we're investing in. We will ensure that um, any vaccine that we're involved in sponsoring is either free to the American people or is affordable. I mean, from his mouth to God's ears, I guess, uh, let's assume that there is a vaccine uh, that passes the phase three trial and is approved by the FDA for use. Are you confident that everyone who needs a vaccine, particularly the elderly or frontline healthcare workers, they will be able to get it soon, quickly? There are so many steps in operationalizing that plan that um, I think if I said I was confident, I would be cautious. Um, I am cautiously optimistic that with the investment that's being made and with the groups that are rallying around to make this happen, I mean, you do have CDC, you have state and local health departments, you have academics who are really, really putting their skin in the game here. You have public health agencies. So I think that if we build on the legacy of other vaccine trial networks that have succeeded in enrolling people in very large studies and getting vaccines off the ground, yes, I think we can do it. It's going to take a massive effort. And the other thing we're going to have to confront and embrace is vaccine hesitancy, right? You know that there's a huge groundswell of people who are hesitant to get vaccines. How are we going to work with them? And I do mean work with them, not argue against them, to really talk about the fact that this vaccine is probably our only hope for getting out of the mess that we're in. That's right. We've seen outbreaks of diseases we thought that had been eradicated a long time ago uh, in different parts of the country. Yeah, conservative parts, liberal parts, because of uh, non-factual, non-scientific information being given about vaccines. Let's talk about that, because Dr. Fauci has also expressed concern uh, that perhaps a, a large percentage of Americans uh, will not go and get the vaccine. New polling shows uh, half to two-thirds of Americans say they would get the vaccine when it's available. That means a third to a half of the American people won't. Uh, that must concern right. you. It, it does concern me, but I also want to know more about those data. So again, you know, when you hear a story that concerns me, just as you as an investigative journalist do, you really want to dig down and find out who did they ask and what do those people know about what a coronavirus vaccine 
study or campaign might look like. Are these young people who are really frustrated because they can't get together and experience critical milestone events in their life because of this darn quarantine situation? Or are they people who have known family members or friends who've suffered or died indeed from this virus? You know we passed, as you said, a thousand deaths yesterday in the United States. The number of people who are going to be personally affected by this virus is going to go up exponentially in the next several weeks. We're now talking, right, if we if we keep on this trajectory, I read a statistic today that said someone could die of COVID every two minutes in the United States. When that starts to happen and it really starts to hit home, it becomes harder for people to be cavalier about the possibility of not participating in a study or participating in a vaccine campaign. So, you know, what you check off on a survey really reflects your mood at the moment. Maybe you're feeling really confident. Maybe you don't know anybody who's had the infection. But I think it's going to get harder and harder for people not to really look deep inside themselves and say, wow, what can I do to help us get out of this, not just to protect myself, but protect my family and my community and society? That's my optimistic, and let's just um, hope. you know, yeah. take. Let's just, let's just hope that, that uh, uh, there is a uniform message, a scientific message based in data yes. and facts coming from all of the leaders, political, cultural, et cetera, across the country, when and if a viable and efficacious vaccine is ready. Uh, Dr. Marazzo, thank you so much for your time today. Yes. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Really appreciate it. President Trump. President Trump said to hold another news conference next hour as he now admits the pandemic will only likely get worse in the U.S. before it gets better. What's behind uh, this change in things he is saying? That's next. Plus, it could mean more money in your pocket, but there's a stalemate over another stimulus. I'm going to talk to Senate Minority Leader Democrat Chuck Schumer ahead. Stay with us. We have some breaking news now. The NFL now says that fans who attend games in person this fall will be required to wear face coverings, though it's not yet clear how many teams will even host fans this season. The season is set to kick off on September 10th, at least as of right now. In our politics lead, President Trump will be back in front of the podium today after acknowledging yesterday that coronavirus will likely get worse before it gets better. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, this new strategy of taking to the podium and trying to sound concerned comes as yet another poll shows the president is trailing Joe Biden, this time by eight percentage points. After attempts to ignore the pandemic didn't work, President Trump acknowledged the grim reality facing the country in his first COVID-19 briefing in months. It will probably, unfortunately, get worse before it gets better. Something I don't like saying about things, but that's the way it is. The shift was a political calculus by a president worried about his sinking poll numbers. But it was notable given what he told Fox News just days ago. I said it's going to disappear. I'll say it again. But does it's that going dis- to disappear. Raising questions about mixed messages, Trump urged Americans to wear a mask as he wrongly claimed that he never resisted doing so. I have no problem. I carry it. I wear it. You saw me wearing it a number of times and I'll continue. Days earlier, he made this claim about masks without citing any evidence. All of a sudden, everybody's got to wear a mask. And as you know, masks cause problems too. The president's return to the briefing room came after several polls showed his reaction to COVID-19 had badly damaged his standing with voters ahead of the November election, though aides denied that was the driving factor. It's not a change. Uh, the briefing stopped, but the work hasn't stopped. He's briefed regularly. 
Kellyanne Conway said the briefings returned because some states reopened too fast. Some of these states blew through our gated criteria, blew through our phases, and they opened up some of the industries a little too quickly, like bars. With the clock ticking, the White House is still negotiating with its own party over what they want in the next coronavirus relief bill, as Senate Republicans remain sharply divided. As it's written to my, right now, I'm not only a no, I'm a hell no. The GOP is split over the price tag, whether to extend enhanced unemployment benefits, and if they should scrap Trump's demand for a payroll tax cut. I think it's a very important thing. It's very good. Republicans are now more confident the White House will get behind more funding for testing and contact tracing in states after initially opposing the idea. No one is blocking any money from testing. A person in the room for the Republican lunch yesterday said Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy rhetorically asked if he was on acid when he heard that the White House was against more funding for testing in the middle of a pandemic. Now, Jake, there is also growing Republican pushback to this White House idea of tying federal funding to the reopening of schools, with several Republicans telling CNN today that is just not an idea that they think they are going to get behind. So that makes three pretty big issues where the White House and Republicans are still not on the same page about what they want to see in this next bill. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much. We have some breaking news for you. Just moments ago, President Trump announced he's sending more federal agents to at least one American city. He has threatened to do the same in Seattle. The mayor of Seattle will join me next to react. That's live and it's next. Breaking news in our national lead today. President Trump charging into more controversy, announcing just moments ago that despite protests from mayors and governors, he is going to send even more federal law enforcement agents into an American city, this time Chicago, where last night 15 people were shot at a funeral. The president also says he will soon send even more agents to other cities to deal with the recent surge in violence, making good on a threat that he's been making uh, for weeks, uh, even after disturbing allegations that these masked, camouflaged federal agents, initially not identified, detained protesters in unmarked cars or even used violence against them in Portland, where the mayor and governor clearly told the president those agents were only inflaming tensions. A court filing released today shows that the federal government sent 114 of these officers to Portland. More than a dozen mayors have written a letter to President Trump demanding the withdrawal of federal agents from their cities. Joining me now is one of them, the mayor of Seattle, Jenny Durkin. Mayor Durkin, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Have you heard anything back from the administration uh, regarding your letter? No, Jake, we've not heard anything back. And I have to tell you, it's so unsettling the president continues down this path. Weeks ago, he threatened to send federal forces into Seattle. The city attorney and I rebuked him and said we would go to court to stop what would be clearly an illegal scheme. He then threatened to send in federal forces. Didn't do that, but we've seen what happened in Portland. Um, it has escalated the violence there, and it really undermines the ability for federal law enforcement to work together with local law enforcement to keep all communities safer where they need to. So President Trump obviously argues that the violence in various cities is out of control. Um, for example, in Seattle, uh, protesters vandalized businesses and a police precinct over the weekend. There were windows shattered. At least one police officer was taken to the hospital. Um, are you saying that you don't want federal help or you just don't want federal help forced upon you? First of all, we, we do need federal help in a lot of areas that the president has resisted. Let's start with COVID. 
You know, we need testing. We need unemployment. We need support for our small businesses. On law enforcement, we can, we have a, I was the United States attorney here and worked as a chief federal law enforcement officer with every local law enforcement jurisdiction in Western Washington. Those kind of partnerships are critical to things from human trafficking to anti-violence, but those task force cannot succeed without the cooperation of local law enforcement and never succeed if they're trying to come in over the objections of local law enforcement. So his, his pattern is not only unprecedented, but it really will do just the opposite of what people would hope. Um, and I think it's unfortunate, again, the president is using federal law enforcement as a political tool. That is so dangerous for America. So you don't think that there's anything in here. Uh, I mean, there is violence in cities. Uh, and obviously with the uh, protests uh, and escalated tensions because uh, stemming from a lot of things, but including uh, George Floyd's murder by a Minneapolis police officer. Uh, we have seen acts of vandalism, but you're saying the president, in your view, doesn't, isn't actually concerned about any of that. He's doing this just to inflame matters more, to, to, to win votes. Is, is, is that what you think? I think absolutely. And I think, look, federal law enforcement works in partnership with local law enforcement, but you have to work together. You can't just dictate what's happened or interfere in local law enforcement. And, you know, everyone believes that we need to do more on gun violence. If the president wants to stop gun violence, let's have a uniform background check. Let's make sure we don't have assault weapons in cities like Chicago. There's a whole range of things that he could do today that would actually save lives but sending in federal agents won't change what happens on the ground if they're not working with and there at the request of local law enforcement. What would you say to somebody who lives in Seattle or the suburbs of Seattle who says, look, I don't know about the politics of all this. I don't know about Trump versus Durkin or any of that. All I know is sometimes I'm afraid to go into downtown Seattle and the president is offering troops. Now, that might be a naive view, uh, but, but there are people who feel that way. What would you say to that person? So a few things. First is um, the president has badly mischaracterized what was happening or what has happened in Seattle. Um, there's no question that when there is local crime, I turn to my chief of police, Carmen Best, and she is the person who I think is best prepared to give us advice on what we need to be doing in our city, and also where we need to have assistance. Um, and we do use assistance from, from federal authorities on everything from human trafficking um, to uh, interrupting organized crime. And those kinds of relationships are very important for every community on an ongoing basis. The last thing you want to do is to undermine those partnerships. And if you force your agents in without any communication with local law enforcement, or over their objections, you will end up into more problems. And we've seen that in Portland. It has proven the case that the federal agent's presence there has escalated things to the point where thousands of people turned out against that action. I think that tells us all we need to know about whether they made it better or whether they made it worse. And we should point out, you're not the only one saying that President Trump is doing this for political reasons. The president himself has publicly said he's singling out cities run by Democrats. 
Uh, and Michael Chertoff, who was the head of the Department of Homeland Security under President George W. Bush, told The Washington Post, quote, essentially, Trump is suggesting this is a political maneuver. As someone who spent four years at the department, the idea that people would be suggesting that it's going to be a tool of political activity is very unsettling. Um, so if the president is doing this for political reasons, as you believe, um, what can you do? What do you do uh, to try to stop violence from escalating in Seattle uh, if the president then you know, turns his sights on your city? I think that's one of our greatest fears in talking to Mayor Lightfoot. It's her fear. I mean, don't forget, the mayor, the mayor of Chicago was a federal prosecutor who has excellent relationships with federal uh, agents there. If she needs help, she knows how to ask for it. So he's not there to help. And I think that um, uh, Mr. Chertoff is exactly right. And it's it tells you a lot coming from him. This president has managed to politicize almost every single one of our government institutions. The Department of Justice has to stand above politics or all the work it does is undermined and the public will lose confidence. The last people you need to be politicized right now is the Department of Justice. And yet we're seeing that both by the attorney general and by the president. Um, this will take a lot to recover. So we will continue to work. Um, we have a mutual assistance uh, relationships between Seattle law enforcement and law enforcement throughout Washington state. Uh, I talk regularly with the governor and with other local, local leaders here. Um, every city right now is having mm. enormous challenges mm. um, and we need help. But the help we need is actually to support our cities, not to invade them. All right. Democratic Mayor Jenny Durkin of Seattle, uh, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. The Trump administration suddenly orders China to close its consulate in Texas. The accusations and why a new video of smoke coming from that building is raising suspicion. That's next. Secrets, stealing, and espionage in our world lead today. The Trump administration has abruptly ordered the shutdown of the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas, accusing the Chinese government of years of illegal spying. Republican Senator Marco Rubio, the acting chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, tweeted, quote, China's Houston consulate is a massive spy center. Forcing it to close is long overdue. And something else fishy, a fire in the consulate's courtyard last night, right as the eviction order came. This video obtained by CNN affiliate KPRC, appearing to show barrels and piles of paper lit on fire, even though the Chinese government called the whole thing political. CNN senior national security correspondent Alex Marquardt joins me now. And Alex, why close this particular consulate? Why now? Well, Jake, the Chinese have six different diplomatic facilities across the country. They have five consulates around the country, the embassy here in Washington, D.C. And according to the most senior national security official at the Department of Justice, there wasn't any one particular thing that led to this. There was what he called a slow buildup of things. The Chinese have been engaging in cyber espionage for years, and that has ramped up in the, over the course of the past few months. They've stole defense secrets, uh, trade secrets, intellectual property, and as of late, they have also been targeting researchers looking for a vaccine for COVID-19. Now, the State Department has not said why the Houston consulate in particular. The biggest clue, perhaps, is from Senator Marco Rubio, who, as you noted, is the acting chairman of the Intelligence Committee, who called this uh, consulate a central node of that massive Chinese spying operation. Listen to what he had to say earlier today. 
This consulate is basically a front for, a, it's kind of the central node of a massive spy operation, commercial espionage, defense espionage, also influence agents to try to influence Congress. So as word came, or as the Chinese certainly got some sort of indication that this word was coming, they did take to burning those documents in the courtyard of the consulate. This is video that has been obtained by CNN. It does show uh, paper documents that are being burned in barrels and piles in that courtyard uh, in Houston. Later on uh, in the evening, there's another piece of video that shows uh, presumably staffers at the embassy, certainly people who are involved at the embassy, trying to extinguish those fires, those embers, um, as, as they burned, uh, that was uh, shot by our affiliate KPRC. Uh, now, the Chinese have 72 hours to vacate uh, that embassy before it gets shut down. Um, often in these situations, Jake, uh, there is a diplomatic tit for tat. So if the U.S. closes one embassy, uh, one consulate, uh, that the Chinese, in this case, would respond uh, in the same way. The Chinese have not yet said that they are going to respond in any sort of concrete way. They have put out a statement uh, saying that this will backfire on itself. They have called on the U.S. to immediately revoke this action. So we ha- we'll have to see how it plays out. The Chinese certainly warning that they could do something. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt, thank you so much. Coming up next, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, joins me as the Senate negotiates For more relief for American families, families that desperately need it, stay with us. Welcome back to our politics lead now. The White House and Senate Republicans are at odds, not with Democrats, but with one another. After a full day of negotiations over a new coronavirus relief bill and with less than three weeks until their August recess. Joining us now, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. So the unemployment rate is 11 percent. And at the end of this month, as you know, the extra money in unemployment insurance that had been provided from previous stimulus bills, that runs out. What is your message to Americans who don't know how they're going to be able to afford food or rent next month? Well, you're right, uh, Jake. We have a whole bunch of cliffs that we're up against. Unemployment insurance runs out. Tomorrow, rental assistance runs out. Millions, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands could be thrown out of their homes. State and local governments have another deadline on August 1st where they don't have enough money and they're going to lay off tens of thousands of more people. And why did this happen? Just what you said. Because our Republican colleagues are just dithering. They're divided. They don't talk to each other. They spend more time talking about getting rid of statues or not getting rid of statues than about the greatest economic crisis we've had in 75 years, the greatest health crisis in 100 years. They're totally, it's pathetic. McConnell went to the floor today and gave a speech. He talked about the New York Times having uh, a writer leaving them, about the cancel culture, not one mention of COVID when we're in such a great crisis. What they have to do is get their act together. The president, the Senate Republicans got to get together and present us with something. We told uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and Chief of Staff Meadows yesterday, Nancy and I, Speaker Pelosi and I, give us a concrete plan in writing and then we can start negotiating. They haven't been able to do it. You can't negotiate with thin air. There's a big debate right now about opening schools. And frankly, it's a horrible Hobbesian choice. Um, Remote learning is awful. It causes problems. It forces working people to have to choose between childcare and employment. On the other hand, opening the schools poses serious health risks to students, to teachers, and to spreading throughout the community. What do you tell your constituents about this problem that, that frankly, well, their government has not been able to solve? Yeah, we Democrats have had a solution for weeks. 
and it's very simple. Everyone wants the schools to open, but only if they open safely. And their schools can do that if they have the resources. I spoke to a school district in upstate New York. They have 4,000 students, 500 um, uh, faculty. If they need a mask every day, that alone, and that's what the experts say, a new mask every day, that alone is hundreds of thousands of dollars. They have to change their bus routes. They can't have the kids sitting right next to each other, so you have to double the bus routes. A lot of the schools want to change their gymnasiums and cafeterias into classrooms. They can do this all with money and open up safely. But again, we've had a plan. We've asked our Republican colleagues to give us a counter plan. They say nothing. And this is what the frustration is. We are frustrated because there are so many people hurting in such a great crisis, and we're willing to sit down and talk with them and negotiate, and they can't come back with any answers. The party is divided. Donald Trump, they know, doesn't know what the heck he's doing. They know in their hearts he's responsible for this crisis in a lot of different ways, and yet they can't break from him. So he says two days ago, amazingly, no more money for testing. Testing is a key. It's one of the reasons the European countries and the Eastern Asian countries are so far ahead of us, which we should be ashamed of because we had the best mm -hmm. health care system in the country. But the president wants to eliminate testing. The Republicans are afraid to say no to him. And we can't eliminate testing money. Yeah. It's a key. It's the frustration. So forget me. How about all the people who will be thrown out of their houses, who will not get unemployment, not be able to feed their families? We're waiting for some concrete proposals. The sooner, the better. And we'll roll up our sleeves and sit so, down and negotiate. So you and Speaker Pelosi met with Treasury uh, Secretary Mnuchin as well as Chief of Staff Meadows. Mnuchin has said he thinks that there can be a deal by the end of next week. Is that possible? Well, you know, if they can get us a concrete plan, we told them very explicitly. You can't just talk in generalities. You can't negotiate in thin air. And we told him, come up with a bill. We've had a bill for two months that, Senate, that the House passed, that Senate Democrats fully support, that deals with all of these things in terms of unemployment, in terms of people being thrown out of the houses, in terms of state and local governments, in terms of opening up schools. Come back with your alternative. And they're so divided among each other. I have never seen a more dysfunctional party in a time of crisis than this Republican Party. And part of the blame is Trump, but part of the blame is the Republican senators who, when they know he's wrong, they know he's off base, they're afraid to refute him. And now he's coming back on the air. I worry what he's going to say. He could disrupt things once again. You know, anytime President Trump goes um, before the public, could be another mm -hmm. public health crisis. Who knows what he'll call for? All right, Senate, Senator Chuck Schumer, Democratic uh, Minority Leader of the U.S. Senate, thank you so much. Appreciate Jake, your time. Sir. our frustration because people are suffering and we want to get something done, but we can't do it when there's a Senate Republican control and a president who's a Republican and won't come to negotiate with us. It's terrible. All right, sir, thank you so much. President thank Trump you. sending well wishes to a woman accused of helping Jeffrey Epstein rec recruit underage girls for rape and sexual abuse. Next, we're going to look at the history between the president and this alleged predator. Stay with us. In our politics lead now, even some Trump-supporting Repu Trump Republicans expressed outrage yesterday when President Trump extended well wishes to Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell's been charged with conspiring with the now-dead pedophile Jeffrey Epstein to sexually abuse teenage girls. Trump and Maxwell have been photographed together, but in an interview with CNN, another former Epstein business partner 
uh, said that the two knew each other well, as CNN's Pamela Brown reports for us now. President Trump's return to the briefing room took an unexpected turn with his response to a question about Ghislaine Maxwell, arrested earlier this month on multiple charges related to sexual abuse of underage girls by her longtime companion, convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. She has pleaded not guilty. I haven't really been following it too much. I just wish her well, frankly. The warm wishes for Maxwell are bringing renewed scrutiny to Trump's relationship with her and Epstein, who government officials say died by suicide in his jail cell last year after being charged with sex trafficking. Some Republican lawmakers reacted to Trump's comments on Twitter, saying, This is unacceptably obtuse for a woman accused of the most morally depraved of crimes. And she is despicable, and he needs to say that. I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach, and I guess they lived in Palm Beach. Uh, But I wish her well, whatever it is. Trump says he's known Epstein since the late 80s, and pictures from the 90s show the president with Maxwell, who became Epstein's girlfriend, associate, and allegedly his madam. One picture shows Trump with Maxwell in 1997. Then again in early 2000 at Trump's Palm Beach property, Mar-a-Lago, with his wife, Melania, and Epstein. Another picture shows Trump with Maxwell that same year at a New York fashion show, and then again with model Naomi Campbell. Epstein's one-time business partner, Stephen Hoffenberg, who spent 18 years in jail for a Ponzi scheme, told CNN today, there's no dispute, they knew each other well, adding he liked her and she liked him. In a 2002 interview with New York Magazine, Trump showered praise on Epstein, calling him a, quote, terrific guy and saying he's a lot of fun to be with. It is even said he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. After Epstein was arrested last year, Trump had a different tune, claiming he kicked Epstein out of Mar-a-Lago years before. He was a fixture in Palm Beach. Uh, I had a falling out with him a long time ago. I don't think I've spoken to him for 15 years. Uh, I wasn't a fan. Prosecutors say Maxwell went into hiding over the last year as more victims came forward, alleging she lured them in and groomed them to be sexually abused by Epstein. Alleged victim Virginia Jufri has claimed Maxwell recruited her in 1999 while she was a locker room attendant at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, though she never alleged any wrongdoing by the president. And Jake, the comments that the president made about Maxwell caught some White House officials off guard. Now he is expected to brief again shortly, so we'll see if he addresses this then. All right, Pamela Brown, thank you so much. Uh, Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. Uh, We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.